I sat beneath a pine tree seeking refuge from the rain as it poured down in gray drizzle, just as it had been all morning. My two older sons hunkered under the same tree, but everything was wet, despite our best efforts. We'd spent the last hour climbing up through the morning dark of a steep avalanche chute as the brisk alpine air turned to dreary daylight. Almost a tree line in the Rocky Mountains, early fall, nearly broaching 12,000 feet in the rarefied air where even trees cannot survive. Lungs burn quicker this high up, alone without cell service, breathing in the solace of this wild place. Raincoats notwithstanding, the steady sheets of precipitation find a way to drench every garment and piece of gear with a special kind of bone-chilling misery. On the harsh mountain, warmth is your friend, wet is your foe. Wool glomets, part glove, part mitten, from the army surplus store hang heavy on the hands, still insulating but in the most unpleasant way possible. Backpacks doused. The raincoats are serviceable at keeping moisture out but cause another problem. They don't breathe and so the sweat soaks you from within, especially after a strenuous early morning ascent on the mountain. It's muzzleloader elk season, which means no effort is spared in the constant war, sometimes successful, sometimes not, to keep the barrel taped and your blackhorn powder dry. Spirits lagging under our lonely pine, we contemplate the likely futility of another rigorous jaunt into the backcountry. The heater in the truck beckons. The thought of biscuits in the pan spark a grumble from the belly. Warm coffee in the thermos calls our name. But we came all this way. The evening prior, from much lower down the mountain, we'd put our bugle tubes to the test. It was a shot in the dark. Bugling sometimes feels that way. Especially after a warm first four days to open the season... Temperatures too hot and elk not doing much calling or us not seeing much activity. In early autumn, with little signs of sexually charged rut activity, it's easy to let your hopes sag. But this evening, there was a reply to our message in a bottlenecked bugle tube. Several hearty bulls sounded off in the upper basins. Hence the plan to get up here early in the morning before the sun, rain be damned, and locate one of those bulls. A few hours into the morning and all quiets on the western front of this mountainside, however, the rain had every creature, not just us, hunkered down. I decided to let my elk trumpet sing anyway. I never won no awards in a calling contest, but it don't matter. I've had my share of bulls take interest. My bugle sounded off in its screeching, haunting, beast-like roar. Seconds of silence, anticipation. A bull responds in the distance. It's hard to explain this moment to those who've never experienced it. A bull elk's bugle somehow cuts through the masculine soul, beckoning it to arise. A deep, guttural roar that turns into a sharp whistle, as fine as any soloist the world has ever known. The mighty bull's bugle is charged with sexual energy, with territorial prowess, and with a wild electricity that calls to something deeper in a man's soul. And so, with my call in hand, we play cat and mouse for something like 20 minutes. But I can tell that he's fired up and ready to engage. Something feels right about this encounter. 
So I throw out a cow call here, a bugle there, trying not to repeat my rhythms. I try to match his intensity and mimic some of his calls. We charge in closer, jogging, then stopping, hurrying up just to wait. And so that's what we do in this moment. We wait. It's always hurry up and wait. Finally, a bugle just over the ridge within a hundred yards. He's right over there, I say calmly to my boys who stand right behind me. Then I hear him again. He's behind us now, boys. I say as I correct course according to that last bugle. I think to myself, he's a smart one. He's circled us. He's trying to play the wind. He's trying to get our scent. But I don't think the rain is helping him. He still thinks we're a bull stealing some of his cows. And he's primed for a showdown. We're in dense forests, so thick you can only see maybe 20 yards in some spots, often less. It's a mix of pine and aspen. Shooting lanes aren't but 20 yards in most places, and sometimes less. But then I see his feet slowly working down the hillside behind us. Get on the ground, I say to the boys, and cover your ears. Trust me, cover your ears. They don't even question the order, which makes a proud father's heart beam. Faces to the ground, they eagerly and blindly wait for what is to come next. In a split-second decision, I pick out a single opening some 12 yards away, and I say to myself, there's not much shooting lane ahead of me. What are the chances he walks right through there? But it's the only break in the treescape I can find in that direction. Suddenly, I see the bull standing behind a tree looking in our direction. Now, this moment is always pivotal when you're calling an elk. It's the make-or-break moment. Will he turn? Will he catch our scent and bolt up the mountain? Or will he keep coming closer? He breaks in our direction, right toward the opening. Once his shoulder clears that opening, I tell myself, I'm sending lead into his vitals. I'm squeezing the trigger. The point of his elbow clears. I can't believe it. This is my mark. And I squeeze the trigger. A cloud of smoke erupts as the dreary silence of the morning is rudely interrupted. I cow call and bugle while at the same time trying to reload and listen for what I hear as the bull runs in the opposite direction. I pick up which way he went and I hear massive amounts of crashing timber. But there's that tenuous moment when you ask yourself, is he running away unscathed or is he giving up the ghost? Was that massive crash a piece of timber that he just cleared or is that his final death blow? I walk a few paces to where he'd have been hit. I look all around, but I don't see any blood. So I decide to wait. Maybe 20, 30 seconds later, I I look left and I see the path where he went. And I look in a stand of quakies, which are aspen trees, for those who don't know. And I see what looks like a gallon of red paint thrown against the trees. I call off the wait and tell the boys, come on, let's move ahead. There's no way you see that much blood and the bull made it very far. Elation something like electric current starts to course through a man's veins at this point. Just a few steps away, we find the mighty beast tangled up in a tree. All majesty and wildness and sun gold glory of a king. 
Emotions flood. The cold, damp gloves are forgotten, and we kneel to our bloody sacrifice on the forest floor. After taking photos and taking in the view, my middle son, unprompted and in awe, lays his hand on the dark mane of this wild beast in all of its glory. He's searching for words. You can see it in his face. And then he looks at me and he says, his hair, dad, is so... It's so wild. Why did we come all this way, enduring the cold, braving the elements, venturing into the backcountry? Why the hunt, the wilderness, the physical punishment and sleep deprivation? Why the chosen hardship? Well, my son's answer, like a clarion call from on high, brings me back to the answer. It's the answer that I keep forgetting in my life, but finding all over again. There is a wild man in the soul of every man. Too often he's caged, but when we learn to set him free, he leads us on a journey to find our golden ball, our genius. A man cannot find his genius, his golden gift to give to the world, unless he climbs on the wild man's shoulders and ventures out into the unknown. You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. In the book Iron John by Robert Bly, we hear the story and exposition of the Grimm's fairy tale, also by the same name, Iron John. As Bly aptly demonstrates in his work, the ancient fairy tale is an incisive symbolic story about masculinity. Bly's analysis is equally insightful. And so I want to read an excerpt from Bly's paraphrase of the original. As the story starts, we find out that something strange has been happening in a remote area of the forest near the king's castle. When hunters go into this area, they disappear and never come back. Twenty others go after the first group and do not come back. In time, people begin to get the feeling that there's something weird in this part of the forest, so they don't go there anymore. One day, an unknown hunter shows up at the castle and says, What can I do? Anything dangerous to do around here? The king says, Well, I could mention the forest, but there's a problem. The people who go out there don't come back. The return rate is not good. That's just the sort of thing I like, the young man says. So he goes into the forest, and interestingly, he goes there alone, taking only his dog. The young man and his dog wander about in the forest, and they go past a pond. Suddenly, a hand reaches up from the water, grabs the dog, and pulls it down under. The young man doesn't respond by becoming hysterical. He merely says, this must be the place. Fond as he is of his dog and reluctant as he is to abandon him, the hunter goes back to the castle rounds up three more men with buckets, and then comes back to the pond to bucket out the water. Anyone who's ever tried it will quickly note that such bucketing is very slow work. In time, what they find lying on the bottom of the pond is a large man covered with hair from head to foot. The hair is reddish. It looks like a little rusty iron. They take the man back to the castle and imprison him. The king puts him in an iron cage in the courtyard, calls him Iron John, and gives the key into the keeping of the queen. 
Now, one day, the king's eight-year-old son is playing in the courtyard with the golden ball that he loves, and it rolls into the wild man's cage. If the young boy wants the ball back, he's going to have to approach the hairy man and ask him for it. But this is going to be a problem. And so Iron John strikes a deal with the boy. If he wants the golden ball back, he will have to let the wild man out of the cage. In order to do this, he will have to retrieve the key, which is hidden under his mother's pillow. He is faced with a pivotal choice. One day, when his parents are away, the boy steals the key from under his mother's pillow and lets the wild man out of the cage. Again, he is faced with a choice. What will he do? Will he get in trouble? The wild man, Iron John, invites the boy to climb on his shoulders and go with him into the woods. And so he does. An excerpt from Iron John by Robert Bly. In this episode, I want to follow Bly's exposition and apply it to us as men. What I find so fascinating is how much more insightful the ancients were, our ancestors, and Bly is a master at leading us down this literary path of discovery, by the way. But the ancients were 99% better than most moderns when it comes to subjects like masculinity. For one, they understood that the depth of something so complex as masculine energy and maturity could only be conveyed in story form wrapped up in the powerful language of symbolism and metaphor, not coldly set down like syllogisms in a scientific formula. They're also happily unaware of such ridiculously stupid and laughable concepts we ignorantly take for granted like gender equity and inclusion. Likewise, the ancients still acknowledged that they lived in a mysterious, spiritually charged world that intersected with heavenly beings and spiritual realms, and earthly yet divine realities. Men and women were creationally different, unique, and made for a purpose. Everyone took this for granted because it was true. Best of all, the ancients weren't postmodern eggheads. The type who, in all their infinite wisdom, try to scientifically rationalize why a boy can cut off his penis and become a girl. So, what does Iron John have to teach us about the story of masculinity? Well, in order to answer this question, I want to start unpacking some of the unique elements of the tale. First and foremost, the hairy Iron John embodies wild man energy. The first thing we notice is that Iron John is red, hence the iron, and he's a hairy wild man. He lay beneath a pond, which represents something like the deep water of a man's soul. In order to bring him out, another daring man in the story had to go into the wild and face danger and bucket out the water. It's no easy feat to find the wild man within. This is something we learn in the tale. And bucketing water out of the pond is a work of repetitive drudgery and perseverance. The importance of this type of bucket work is also addressed in something Solomon said in Proverbs 20 verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. The Hebrew word used here for heart can mean inner man, mind, will, heart, inner part, or soul of a man. There are parts of a man that lay deep within the soul and have to be drawn or bucketed out. 
The story tells us that a wild man lives within the soul of every man, however deep he may be beneath the waters. The journey of masculine growth requires that we find him, and we must know that it requires a lot of hard work to do so. As Bly says, quote, When a contemporary man looks down in his psyche, remember the Greek word is suke or soul, he may, if conditions are right, find under the water of his soul, lying in an area no one has visited for a long time, an ancient, hairy man, end quote. Next, let's focus on the wild man's hair because it is significant. Hair, in my story earlier about the elk, was also the first thing my son noticed and associated with raw wildness. Well, there's an instinctual reason he noticed. One only need think of characters like Enkaidu, the Babylonian wild man, or Esau, the mighty hunter in Genesis. Remember, Esau was also red like iron. Hair in the ancient world symbolized primitive and instinctive sexual energy. Hair suggests a closeness to animals, wild energy, hunting, and most of all, an animal hot-bloodedness. The passionate nature of hot-blooded mammals as compared to the cold-blooded nature of reptiles. This is also connected to the red or iron color, which stands for fiery temperament, passion, lion-like fierceness, spontaneity, and prowess over a territory or space. The wild man, therefore, teaches us that sexual energy is good, that hunting instinct, which mammals possess without shame, is good, that animal heat, fierceness, and passionate spontaneity is good, and that excess, extravagance, and going out beyond the castle boundaries is good, too. Hair is also what comes out of a man's head, and therefore it represents his thoughts, his creative energy, and his glory. Hair grows and comes out of a man's head even when he's sleeping, so his thoughts are not merely conscious. Even when he is ruled by the subconscious at night when he sleeps, thoughts come out of his head, sometimes in the form of dreams. Speaking of hair, it's no coincidence that modern man in modern corporate spaces is often required to be clean-shaven. His wildness is intolerable. As Bly notes, quote, The wild man who stands up is frightening and seems even more so now, when the corporations do so much work to produce the sanitized, hairless, and shallow man, end quote. Samson's wild spirit was closely connected to his hair as well, you will remember, and he was an uncut Nazarite. He was even wilder than a lion. Jesus is described as the ultimate Nazarite, whose fierce spirit cannot be tamed and who walks around among the beasts in the wilderness. To clarify then, what exactly is wild man energy? We know that it's red and we know that it's hairy. Well, it's not macho arrogance or empty chest pounding. Wild man energy is, as Bly says, quote, forceful action undertaken not with cruelty, but with resolve. It also represents our own brilliance, bounty, wildness, greatness, and spontaneity, end quote. Wild man energy is an untamed fierceness that learns how to utilize our golden gifts, and more about that in a second, for the good of our community. These include our sexual energy as men, our courage, our virility, and it includes our creative capacities, things like building, fighting, and winning. It includes, finally, our warrior spirit, or protection, fierceness, and bravery in battle. Two forms of wild man energy include Elijah and John the Baptist, fiery preachers who walked around in wild, 
hairy cloaks. There's a reason for the hairy cloaks. Their wildness always offended the hot couture of the soft elite establishment. In fact, this is what wild man energy always does. It's disruptive. It challenges the status quo. It calls men to greater standards of fierce, passionate devotion to righteousness. At its core, Iron John is a reminder that wild man energy is essential to the masculine nature. It takes hard work to cultivate. It's scary. It's risky. But when he finds the wild man and lets him free, a man becomes unnice. He no longer allows himself to be a doormat. He lives up to his name, which in Latin, vir, means courage. Today, when we read about Samson's wild man energy, let's be honest, it makes us uncomfortable. We've been trained in our churches to be nice, but Samson is not nice. He tied foxes together, set them on fire, and sent them into his enemy's fields. This is what wild man energy looks like. Wild man energy is always, also, societally taboo. We have to recognize that corporations and school-marm governments and globo-homo and soul-destroying bureaucracies will always try to squash the wild man instinct here. And so you have to know, if you want to unleash the wild man energy, you're going to have all sorts of societal forces working against you. Bly says this, quote, For generations now, the industrial community has warned young businessmen to keep away from Iron John, and the Christian church is not too fond of him either. The wild man is not opposed to civilization, but he's not completely contained by it either, end quote. You see, a man who can't be controlled or contained is generally seen as a threat. There are different ways, of course, to discover and unleash our wild man energy. And it's not a simple, neat, tidy, or wooden formula. We would all like three easy steps, but it doesn't work like that. There are, however, a few guiding principles that can lead the way. And so I want to lay them out in order and then go into more detail one by one. First of all, we need to experience trials and testing in wild places among the wild beasts. It's hard for modern urbanites or suburbanites to imagine how I could be serious about this point. But there's a reason Jesus, Jacob, the patriarch, John the Baptist, and Samson were all tested in wild places among wild beasts. More about this in a moment. Second, and closely related, we need masculine rites of initiation by other older, wiser, experienced men. Third, we need to escape the controlling world of women and in the process develop sacred male-only spaces. And fourth, we need to learn how to embrace danger and risk in the courageous deployment of our vocational gift. Or, as Stephen Pressfield has called it in The Legend of Bagger Vance, our one true authentic swing. We'll turn to that subject now. So this is point number two overall. The man must unlock the cage to get the golden ball back. If you recall in our story, Iron John is put in a cage within the walls of a castle. The boy loses his golden ball to the cage. Iron John now holds it. And he says to the boy, if you want your ball back, you'll have to let me out. That's the deal. The golden ball here symbolizes a child's genius, or what the Greeks called his daemon, which is known early on in life for the child but lost as boys make the transition into manhood. This is the child's God-given gifting, and it is connected with the gold because gold is from the sun. It's divine. It's radiant. It's kingly. Louis was the sun king. 
It is divinely imparted gifting, or as Wordsworth said, trailing clouds of glory do we come. What does this look like, though, in life? Well, at the age of eight, a child knows what he loves and has no adult pretensions about doing well in business or being successful or having a respectable profession. But societal pressures conform him and lead him to believe he needs to, quote, explore his options. He needs to take a job at a high-status company and, quote, be responsible. At some pivotal moment, a father figure usually gives a wound. He tells his son how stupid it is for him to think he could be an artist or an architect or a woodworker or to start his own plumbing business. School teachers and mothers, many of whom are bitter at their distant husbands whom they don't really get along with, and are busy day-binging Hallmark Channel, they like to rule their boys and adolescents' existence 24-7 with absolute tyranny of safetyism. They do everything they can to crush the masculine urge to take risk and be courageous and develop a capacity for danger, especially the women in our era today. So what does the boy do? He gives up his golden ball. He leaves it locked in the cage with the wild men in his masculine wild energy. He trades a world of risky adventure for cold and sterile cubicles, for medical benefits and an utterly meaningless, soul-destroying job. He is the kind of nice, harmless man that status societies love to spawn. He is highly controllable, highly predictable, and utterly and pathetically safe. The story tells us that to get the ball back, the boy has to let Iron John out of the cage. Later in our story, he will ride on Iron John's shoulders into the forest. That's when his real training begins. In other words, he's got to tap into his own ancient wild man energy. The Greeks called this Zeus or king energy. But what are the cages today? Let's stop and ask that question. What are the cages today? What's stifling men from exploring their wild man energy? Well, feminism is certainly a huge part of the answer. Every wild masculine trait is labeled as toxic, it is vilified, and then it is punished. Men are told to be receptive, empathetic, nonviolent. Testosterone is falling everywhere among men. I read the other day that somebody in the year 2000 at the age of 67 has the same testosterone level as somebody in 2022 who is 20 years old. Something has gone wrong with men and with testosterone. What is one of the ways that we can deal with that? Well, it's by eating red meat, actually. Red meat is going to help men act like red-blooded men. Diet and nutrition are a huge part of this, as well as exercise. One of my favorite places to get my protein, my red meat, is from Salt and Strings Butchery in Illinois from my friends Quinn and Samantha Bible. I've been plugging it. I've been wearing the t-shirt. Why? Because I love this meat. And now that I'm on a carnivore diet, uh, you got to have some good meat if you're going to eat it all the time, 24-7. They have some amazing meat bundles that you can check out, have it shipped to your door. A few of my favorites, we've got New York Strip and we've got ribeye. I'm telling you, Quinn will do a one or two inch ribeye, the two inch ribeyes. Ladies and gentlemen, it's like a small slice of heaven. So definitely check that out. You can check it out at saltandstrings.com. That's Quinn and Samantha Bible with Salt and Strings Butchery. Amazing prime beef. Cannot recommend it enough. It's been a staple in my own diet. And I felt amazing. 
going carnivore, getting the nutrition. So you can check out your meat bundle today. Order now from Salt and Strings Butchery, saltandstrings.com. You can check that out also in the show notes. Corporate bureaucracy and the industrial machine, which have grown as a leviathan, strangling out every square inch of modern life, they also form thick bars on the cage. Again, things like pornography pacify and render men impotent. It's a cage on their sexuality. Consumerism fuels the enslavement to colleges, corporations, and other forms of debt. So there's more than one type of bar and more than one type of lock on this cage. But ultimately, and here's the thing you can't miss, the boy is the only one who can let Iron John out. If Iron John remains caged, it's really because the boy left him caged. He is the one who has decided to play it safe. He has to get the key and not ask permission from the king or the queen. The prisons of the masculine soul today, though often not built by the men themselves, they only work because we allow them to. We are the ones who hold the key, or at least, as we shall see in just a moment, we know where the key is hid. We allow ourselves to be scolded by school marms and domineering wives and Dilbert-esque bosses. Many men don't realize that they have another option. And so we leave the wild man in the cage because he could get us into trouble with an army of Dolores Umbridges. Now back to the golden ball for just a moment. The story tells us that to get our golden ball back, that is to find our gift, our passion, our life's work that makes us truly come alive. This is our deep work. In order to get the golden ball back, we have to free the wild man. This is truly profound. It means if you want to explore and unleash your true potential of vocational giftedness, if you want to find your one true authentic swing, you've got to tap into that masculine energy, wild man energy, and you've got to let it out of the cage. This is an astonishing revelation. Without wild man energy, you will keep trading your greatest work for TPS reports and cubicle cages and life on the wage slavery plantation. You'll keep allowing safetyism and risk-averse women to control you. If you want your golden ball back, men, you've got to set Iron John free. Number three, the boy must retrieve the key, which is under his mother's pillow. Again, this feature of the story is massively significant and insightful. If men are to set their wild man free and get the golden ball back, they have to steal the key and the key lies hidden underneath their mother's pillow. So why the mother's pillow? Well, because to make the journey to mature manhood, the ancients understood a boy must escape the controlling world of women and more precisely, the prototypical woman, his mother. Mothers are nurturers, and this is a good thing, but there comes a time when a boy must push away from his mother's world and enter the world of men. There must be a cutting away, a division, so that he can become something new. In modern parlance, we might say it like this. A boy has to learn how to stop being a mama's boy. He has to stop playing among the older women's skirts. He needs to become his own man, which we cannot do if we are controlled by women. We have to leave our mother and her safe, nourishing world of femininity, and we have to enter the risky, dangerous, courageous world of men. We must trade in a child's natural softness for a man's hard-earned calluses, his strong back and his toughness, his fortitude. 
Speaking on adolescent males, Leon Podols writes that, quote, the characteristic action of the man is separation from the mother, which reflects the divine pattern of action. This is from the church impotent, end quote. The separation is a cutting, a division, which is often hard for mothers, especially the overbearing feminist types in our age, to allow. The pillow is also the place, interestingly, where a mother stores all of her dreams for her son. She will dream that he takes on some honorable profession like the doctors in the soap opera she watches, or perhaps that he enters the ministry like Mr. Collins, where he will then comfort old women. But she never dreams, my son the wild man. And so he must escape her dreams for him, if they are misplaced, and he must chart his own wild man course. It's important that the story includes the element of theft as well, which means that the boy must learn something of cunning in order to get the key back. The Spartans required their boys to steal food, and they would beat them if they got caught. Why? Well, they clearly understood that the best warriors, the wildest of men, are capable of daring feats of cunning and cleverness. This is how you would win a battle. They have to outsmart their enemies. They have to sometimes lurk in the shadows and pick a lock or two along the way. To reach manhood, a boy must successfully cut himself off from the world of women. This includes his mother and all the ladies overseeing his elementary school education. He must utterly, utterly reject, above all, nice guy syndrome, which is what happens when men never leave a mother's control but convince themselves they can gain social status by always seeking to please women. This is why so many wives, by the way, are so miserable. We spoke of this in an earlier episode on the nice guy syndrome, and I'd encourage you to check that out. His mother says, don't go out into the woods, it's too dangerous. But he goes anyway. She says safety first, and he replies, safety third. And once he's left, been dangerous, and he's won the honor among other men, he will then be attractive to the right kind of noble golden-haired woman, which we won't talk about in this episode, but comes up later in the Grimm's fairy tale. The boy will be ready to become a man and to take a bride, but how will he ever develop the courage to cut himself off and venture into a man's world? The answer is our last major heading. Number four, the boy must go off on a wild man's shoulders if he is to complete his masculine journey. In this point, I'm actually combining two points I said earlier, namely that men need rites of initiation from other experienced older men, and second, that they need testing experiences in wild places. Now, for centuries, these two things flowed naturally together. Tribal peoples would isolate their young men from the women. Bly even tells of one tribe that would forbid its women and the young men from making eye contact or speaking to each other for several years. The son wouldn't be allowed to talk directly to his mother until his manhood was established. And then they would send these young men off on some hunting party to earn his feathers among the other men. Women cannot teach boys how to be men. Instead, older men are necessary for this task. One of the reasons we have so much father hunger in our culture in America today is because the old men are out RVing around the country or yachting in the Caribbean, living off their children's inheritance. They are not overseeing the initiation of young men as they were supposed to be doing. The old men are not mature men, even if we called them back to this rite of initiation. They're just Peter Pans themselves. They never grew up. And so they can't be of any real assistance. 
Likewise, Bly talks about how sons have a yearning to be bodily near their fathers and other men in their work. What was once normative, that is, sons working alongside fathers from an early age, was destroyed after the Industrial Revolution. Not seeing their father's work, Bly says, sons become suspicious about what their fathers actually do, and they no longer share a generational bond in shared work. Now, to some extent, the Boy Scouts were, before they became a perverted den of pedophiles, one answer to this great question about how to bring fathers and sons back together in wild places. And so maybe you find something in annual hunting trips out west, as I described in the opening of today's show. These can serve much in that capacity when embarked upon intentionally. After the bull was killed, we spent five or so hours skinning, gutless quartering, and hauling meat off the mountain on our backs. It is excruciating, but proud work. And I say proud because a boy and man are proud to have killed, proud to have something to bring back to their people. The warrior is proved and confirmed once again, and a man has prideful glory about it. This is a phenomenal place for initiatory work to take place for men. You could find it in chicken butchering days or hog slaughter days, though the element of the wild is missing. But you still have some great parts, like the company of men, strenuous work, and blood sacrifice. My point is simply this. We need more, not less, of male initiatory rites, which are sponsored and put on and overseen by older, wiser men. Again, old men are sort of like the midwives of masculinity for younger men. They have to help them through this process. It is the only way that a society like ours will begin again to produce mature men. I want to close and leave you with this, which comes from my friend Brian Sauvé. The mountains are magnets and you are the steel. Danger it speaks in the heady thin air, beckoning, calling, and waving their hands, saying, come on boys, come further up, come further in. Wild places and wild beasts, danger and dragons and sharp-fanged predators, they call to a man's soul, and somewhere deep beneath the pool, the wild man calls back. Be courageous, men. Take the risk. Live dangerously. Safety third. There is a wild man in the soul of every one of you. To be a complete man and to discover your genius, your great gift, which you will give to the world, your one true authentic swing... That work you do that makes the stars align? In order to do it, you must discover and rediscover time and again the wild man. You must let him free from the cage and learn from him in wild places. So get on the wild man's shoulders and ride out into the wildness. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, definitely appreciate all of our listeners, especially those who are supporting on Patreon, I would encourage you, if you're not yet a Patreon supporter, if you love hearing and listening and partaking in great Christian work like this, that you would become and consider becoming a Patreon supporter for as little as $5 a month. Tons of perks. You get exclusive access to unique content for Patreon only. We just had one uh, with Ben, Ben Garrett and Dan Burkholder, uh, Eric and Ben and Dan through the internet, we had a lot of good conversations, including conversations about the ever-deleting tweet threads of Tom Hicks. A lot of good conversation there. Tom had claimed recently 
that Jesus never said to disciple the nations. And we counter simply by quoting Matthew 28. Go therefore and disciple the nations. We look at some of the Greek and we talk about a lot of other things too, including our upcoming carnivore. You get a lot of, uh, Dan and I are doing the carnivore challenge, the Hardeman carnivore challenge. More about that in an upcoming episode, but uh, we'll be doing that. And uh, so we're talking behind the scenes. You get the VIP tour of everything going on in Ogden, Utah. So definitely uh, be encouraged to check that out. Sign up on Patreon today. You can find links for that in the show notes. Also, go to ericcon.com. We have a store. We have drop shipping. Works phenomenally. And you can get your Virtus or Pietus t-shirts. They look awesome. If I don't uh, say so myself, you got Virtus and Pietus coffee mugs. If you want to drink your coffee with Virtus in your soul, uh, definitely encourage you to check those out as well. You can order today and they'll be sent and uh, yeah, you can uh, drink your coffee and dress in style. Once again, I just want to give a shout out. Thank you to everybody who is a Patreon supporter. We deeply appreciate you guys. Great meeting so many of you at County Before Country. Hope everybody has a good time at Fight, Laugh, Feast. Uh, wasn't able to make it. Uh, tons of busy things going on here. We're excited to announce some of them upcoming. And, uh, you know, lay a little breadcrumbs here, but we've got a bunch of really cool stuff that we're doing here as well. And so stay tuned for more of that. And until next time, men, stay frosty, fight a good fight, act like men.